Uh, I'm going to do things a little bit different today, is that we are in part eight of our Joshua series. I entitled today's message, Alignment. And what we're going to be doing is going through two stories kind of concurrently. Uh, because this particular story in Joshua is so highly detailed, we're going to read through it. I'm going to be commenting along the way, but we're not going to be stopping and and trying to talk about a lot of application from it because I have something else that I think works in conjunction with it. And it's very rare that I ever uh, shamelessly plug a book. I'm about to do that right now. Now, you know, I don't do this very often, but you need to go out and get this book. Uh, this is a book called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. Um, it's, it's not brand new. He has a bunch of books out. This guy's really, really intelligent. Um, I, I need you to get the book uh, because I think it will lead to a transformation in your life as to how you think and how you're processing, how you reach out, and how you understand the Lord's love. So I'm going to be teaching through pieces of the prodigal son story to you today as it is taught in this book. I will not give you everything, that's why i got to go buy it, but I'm going to be giving you the overview and the general gist, because what we're going to do at the end of today is I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Uh, some people call them altar calls, all right? But here's how it's going to go, lest you think I manipulate you. I'm going to let you know in advance. Um, is The whole idea is at the end of today, I'm going to say, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If that is a yes, I'm going to ask you when the song plays at the end to go over by our prayer sign. Everyone else, I'm going to talk about some ways that we can reconnect with God and recommit our lives to Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to come forward here at the altar and spend some time at the end. So I want to be very upfront with you. Having said all of that, uh, let us begin. The story of the prodigal son is in Luke 15. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell you the story. Of course, you've got to go check it afterwards, see if I lied. But for right now, you can trust me. Luke chapter 15 tells a story. And it's actually a series of three parables Jesus taught about things that were lost. He talked about a coin that was lost that a woman scoured her house and found the coin. The other one was about a lost sheep that the shepherd left the 99, went and found the sheep and brought them back. And then there was a lost son. That is the story that we're going to talk about. Unfortunately, we've largely missed the boat as to what the story is about. The story is not primarily about the younger son who came home. The story is about the older son that remained. And that is why it's so applicable to us today in the church. Prodigal, we always assume means the one who did something bad left and had to come home. That is not what prodigal means. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant or having spent everything they have. That's why he defined God as the prodigal God. When you talk about grace and what lengths God has gone to to rescue you, He is recklessly extravagant. That's the meaning of the story. It talks a lot about the Father's heart. 
So let's kind of go through it. If we remember, here's the context. Jesus is hanging out, and when he would teach, a bunch of sinners would come around. And when I say sinners, everybody's sinners. These people were known around town as being the bad guys, the bad girls. That was the point. Well, they would flock towards Jesus, and they would sit at his feet and learn. And that really irritated the religious figures of the day, the Pharisees. Uh, They were kind of smug, self-righteous. They were the church folk. They really got irritated that Jesus spent so much time with these losers. And so they would begin to come around and see what was going on, and they would kind of pick it apart from the fringes. Well, sure enough, it was because the Pharisees were there, it says, that Jesus told this parable. So the parable is directed towards them primarily, not so much towards the sinners. We have both kinds here today. Obviously, we have sinners and we have the self-righteous among us, for sure. So here's the story. A man had two sons, and the younger son came to him one day, and he says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, it was the younger son, and in the Middle Eastern culture, when the father died, his inheritance would be divided, and it would go two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the younger son. For the younger son to ask for his inheritance early was to say, Dad, I wish you were dead now so I could get what you represent to me, which is the paycheck. In order to get one-third of his inheritance, the father would have to sell land holdings, which means he has to turn his life upside down. In Israel, land holdings are everything. They are your status. In other words, the father had to somewhat wreck himself in order to answer this request. What the response should have been was shame the son and kick him out of society. Now, granted, all the society knew about this and they shamed him out. He was not allowed to come back as the son. The father, however, in love, said, I will grant your request because I love you, divided up the inheritance, gave him one third, and sent him on his way. He went out, went overseas, spent everything on hookers and parties. That's exactly what it says in Scripture. Wasted all of his cash, squandered everything God gave him, ends up literally in a pig pen. Now, for a Jew, hanging out with pigs isn't kosher. He's hanging out in a pig pen, eating what pigs eat, a complete failure. He comes up in his mind, he says, well, I know my dad is good, so I can kind of play off that. What if I get an opportunity to go home, I'll beg his forgiveness, I will try to be hired on as a hired worker, and it's likely that his plan was to try to pay back the debt that he has to his dad, which is not likely, but he wants to pay back the debt to his dad so he can be reinstated into society. So sure enough, he comes home. Now, meanwhile, the older son is at home working out in the fields, being the responsible guy. Well, sure enough, dad sees his return. He sees him coming from a distance. Instead of folding his arms and reprimanding him upon his return, the father does what Middle Eastern men do not do. He picked up his robes and ran. He ran to him, grabbed him, embraced him, kissed him, and welcomed him back into the family by doing three particular things. He gave him, he said to his servants, go get him the best robe in the house. Who do you think's robe is the best robe of the house? The dad's. 
He said, give him a ring. The ring represents full rights to the family, which means he has been re-included and now gets a new one-third share of the inheritance. He then says, kill a fattened calf, the most expensive meat, because meat isn't primarily used in their meals. Kill a fattened calf, the most expensive thing, and we're going to throw a massive party for him. And they run off. The son is encouraged. And the son says, I I was going to try to earn your, your love back. And the father says, what are you talking about? I'm just glad you're home. And he welcomes him in. And we all look and we go, yay, isn't that neat? Because now God has just welcomed home the young son. We can come and he just gives us free grace and he gives us free forgiveness and everything's fantastic. That is actually not what the story is about. However, that's a wonderful piece to it. The oldest son is in the field working and he hears a ruckus back at the house. When they throw a party, they invite the whole village. So this is a huge party. Now understand that technically, everything that is now in this father's home, land, and possessions belongs to the younger son. I mean the older son, right? Because they've already split up. One third, he gets everything else. So everything that is about to happen goes on whose bill? The older son's bill. The fattened calf? Everything. He hears this, and he hears music and dancing, and he comes in out, and he's like, wait a second, what in the world is going on? I'm out here working. They're like, your brother's back. Dad's pumped. He gave him this big hug. We're throwing this huge party. We got all his food. Come on in. And he's like, what? He's back. Why the heck is he back? What's his problem? He already took everything. He's gone. He's dead to me. No, no, no. He's back. That's, it's like dad's really excited about it. Well, I'm not. I want nothing to do with that guy. You know what? No, I ain't going in. Forget that. What? I'm here and he takes off and does whatever he wants. Now he can come back. I don't think so. Not on my watch. Not on my bill. Dad wants me. He can come get me. Well, father comes out of the party. That is a shame in their culture that the father would have to leave his party. He is the head of the house. What dad says goes. Oh, but both sons are telling dad what's up. He is outside and the father then has to emerge from the party, stop his whole party as the host, and go out and talk to the older son. And he says, what's going on? He says, nice. So I'm here slaving for you day after day. And this is what you do. You have no right He does not address him as honorable father. He says, look, you don't get it. Now you can imagine that at that point the father could just re-rack his whole world. And the father says, my son, you have me. You've always had me. But do you understand that's not what either one of the sons have ever wanted. They just want what he represents. A paycheck stuff he said all I have is yours but don't you get it your brother was lost he's found he was dead and now he's alive that's something to celebrate Mm -hmm. there are two kinds of people in the church today there are older brothers and younger brothers 
And there are two ways to be alienated from God. The Pharisees were the olders, the sinners were the younger. Jesus says, you are both lost. You both don't have me. Both sons wanted the same thing, and they're far more alike than they would have ever dreamed. Both sons wanted to make their own decisions and tell dad what to do. Both used their father for self-centered means. Both sons rebelled, one by being bad, one by being very good. See, legalistic, selfish morality is the exact same thing as wild sinning. Both put yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Make no mistake, you can avoid Jesus by doing all the right things. Look at the fill in the blank on your sheet in front of you. This is where we must begin and where we must keep as a baseline. It is this. Determine today that God's way is always best. Determine today that God's way is always best. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 8? Joshua chapter 8 verse 1. If you have one of the Bibles we handed to you, it's page 156. Joshua chapter 8 verse 1. As I told you, I'm just going to go through this and read through the story. It's pretty self-explanatory. I think we can put all the pieces together. So we're going to go through the story and I'm going to wrap up the message by sharing with you the power of the story of the prodigal son. There's more to it and I think it's going to lead us home. Page 156, Joshua chapter 8 verse 1. Let's just read the first verse and then uh, we'll pray for the word today. Joshua 8.1 says, Then the Lord said to Joshua... Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we understand you and come to the end of ourselves once again. That, Lord, after we have received you, we tend to immediately begin to build our kingdoms once over. We separate ourselves from you, we chafe under your authority, we resist who you have become, and we don't like you telling us what to do. We have isolated and alienated ourselves from you, and we have dried up and died inside. I pray that today we would reconnect, and we would come home. Show us, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we talked through the story that now that Israel had come into the promised land and crossed the river in a miraculous way, they did their first campaign assault against the city of Jericho. A great miracle tumbles the walls. They take it over. God said, that's the first one you took. First fruits are mine. Don't touch my stuff. Sure enough, one guy, a Jew by the name of Achan, runs in, sees a lot of stuff, takes it, hides it in his camp. All of a sudden, Israel thinks everything's cool. They run into their next battle against a city named Ai, a smaller city, and they lose. 36 of their men are killed in the process. They're horrified, demoralized. Joshua falls apart, falls before God. God, what's going on? I don't get it. I thought you were with me. Now I'm questioning everything. And God says, get off your face. Really? We're whining. There's sin in the camp. Until you fix it, we're not doing anything. Start over. 
Clean it out, root out the sin, then we'll go about blessing. Are you clear? I will reveal to you who did this. I want you to get him out of here, and then we can start again. So God, through a whittling process, narrows it down from tribe to clan to family to individual man. Achan is then moved out in front of everyone, and Joshua said, what would you do? He said, well, I ripped off some gold, silver, and a robe. He said, then I guess we're done then. And all of Israel stoned him to death and burned everything and all of his family. That was last week. We considered the impact of sin in our lives. And it was pretty depressing. Man, last week was hard. I mean, it was like, man, if you came with a good attitude, man, you left with a bad attitude. Right? Because I just hammered on you. It was this whole, you know, who's the sinner in our midst? I mean, that kind of thing. After they had considered their sin, after they had dealt with their sin, God says, now then, can we do this over? All right, great. Let's pick up steam. Let's go. That's where we are today. So let's go through this and see what God has. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Why did he say that? Every time you hear it in the Bible, it's one of the most common commands of the Bible. Why does he say it? Because we're always discouraged and we're always afraid. That's why. And last time, Joshua got blown out of the water, so he's a little gun-shy. God says, all right, but we've dealt with this. Let's move forward. Let's stop looking back. Let's go forward, all right? Excellent. Take the whole army with you, because last time they only took 3,000 soldiers. Now they're going to take over 35,000. Go up and attack Ai. Ai means ruins. It's about 15 miles from where they are camped as a team in a city called Gilgal. I have delivered into your hands, God said, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Now God gives the okay. You shall do to Ai and its king what you did to Jericho and its king, which means wipe them out completely. Except that this time you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So God gives them a little indicator of a strategy. Here's how I want you to take them down. So Joshua and the whole army moved out and attacked Ai, and he chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Do not go very far from it. I want all of you to be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we're going to run away from them. Now remember last time when they got beat down, Israel ran. They chased them far away. They're going to play off that overconfidence, make it look like the same thing's going to happen again, and lure them out. Verse 6, they will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say, oh, they're running away from us as they did before. So we will flee from them, and you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. That's that confidence they're waiting for. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. That will be a sign to our enemy that we got him. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off. They went to the place of ambush and they lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night with the people. Man, what a powerful leader. This guy's solid. Do you all remember how old he is? How old is Joshua right now leading the army? 85. 85 years old. He's out there and he is going to put his life on the line. He's going to stay the night with the soldiers in the field, and he will be amongst his people. This guy's tough. Really, really strong man. 
Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with a valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. That's two miles away. They all had to hide in the ravines. They had the soldiers take up their positions and all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. All right, kind of get a picture. It almost appears that there are three contingents. There's the big group coming from the front. There seems to be a block from the back and a block from the side of 5,000 each. So they have it pretty much surrounded. But Ai only sees the big group coming forward. That night Joshua went into the valley, that means to start the war. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he didn't know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. So Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them and they fled toward the desert. Now that's pretty risky. If you go stab somebody and then run away, they can shoot an arrow at you. So this is a pretty risky strategy, but it's what they had. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel, that's another city, so how in the world they got involved, I have no idea, who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. That's called overconfidence, and that's going to cost them their city. The Lord said to Joshua, hold out towards Ai the javelin that is in your hand. Clearly that was his weapon tool. That's where you get to throw and pin people to the ground. Hold out the javelin that's in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai. This kind of reminds me of when Moses lifted his staff out over the Red Sea. Do you remember that? And then the waters began to part. It's kind of that cool picture. But it's also for another reason. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. From behind the city, they entered the city, captured it, and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites who had been fleeing from the desert turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up, they turned around, attacked the men of Ai, and the men of the ambush came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle. With Israelites on both sides, Israel cut them down, leaving neither survivors nor fugitives. Their entire army was gone like that. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua because they're going to do something special with that guy. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. That's everybody else. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. Now remember, we've made a couple comments on this war. This is not about Israel getting to go kill people. This is God's judgment on a people he's been working on for 400 years. This is God's battle, not Israel's battle. So God is going through and wiping out people groups as a judgment. He is using and utilizing Israel to do so. So he's cleaning out, cleaning house. It says... Uh, for Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. What does that remind you of? 
This is something that Joshua learned a trick a while back. First time you ever see Joshua in the Bible, he was fighting as the commander of Israel's army against the Amalekites. Moses was told by God, when you raise your arms, Israel will win. When you put them down, they're going to lose, right? So Joshua's fighting, and he's looking at Moses, and he's like, dude, keep your arms up. What are you doing? Right? And Moses is like, I'm tired. So they had to have Aaron, his brother, and her, one of his best friends, hold his arms up. And as long as his arms were up, they would win, and Joshua won that day. Joshua has this all in mind, and he's like, I am not letting this javelin go down. He knows what it's like to be on the field, right? So they wiped everybody out. When Israel had finished, uh, oh, excuse me, but Israel, verse 27, but Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and the plunder of the city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. Why is that important? Because about three days ago, Achan was stoned because he couldn't wait three days. I mean, isn't that the truth of the matter? He stole stuff because he wanted plunder. He would have got it three days later, but he couldn't hang. I'm going to tell you that one of the greatest tricks of the devil is one word. Shortcut. I want you to consider that in your life right now. What is Satan saying? You could get it if you did it properly, but quite frankly, you and I both know you're too tired and it's too much work. Can we just do a shortcut? What's that in your life? Because I'll tell you right now, Satan's got you wrapped around his finger on that one. How do I know? Because it's what he does to me. And I fall for it a lot. Then it says, Then Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He did a really good job because the archaeologists can't find it. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there till evening. Now why would he do that? In Deuteronomy 21, it says, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. That was a dishonoring thing. That was a, I'm going to hang you up and embarrass you. When someone is hung, it's not pretty. There's a lot of things that your body has to do to compensate, to shut down. Therefore, when you hang someone publicly, kings were all about the appearance. So he hung them up in front of everybody. And he said, you will be shamed. But in Deuteronomy 21, there are also rules. That he didn't want the Israelites normally to go beyond one day. So at evening, get him down and get him out of the place. So it says, at sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance to the city gate. That means I have totally dominated you. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, the fourth memorial in the promised land, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, just like Abraham did in the same location in Genesis 12, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. Now, likely, this little altar he's about to build is 30 miles in between two mountains in a city that is called Shechem. In the New Testament, it's called Sychar. But it's likely that is where this is built, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And you're going to hear about them over and over here in a moment. He built the altar according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. Where's that? Deuteronomy 27, Moses said, when you get in the promised land, I want you to build an altar, and here's exactly how I want you to do it. All this is spelled out 
by Moses a long time before. Moses, Joshua was just following orders. An altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Why has it got to be raw rocks? Why can't it be chiseled out and look nice? Because there's a point to it. And the point is, this has nothing to do with man's effort. This is a God thing. This is raw. Set up the altar because God's doing it, not you. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings. Now, burnt offerings are normally for sin. They're atonement for something that was done wrong. That's where you lay your hands on the animal, cut the animal's neck, drain the blood, throw the animal on the fire. But it was not just them understanding that God had covered their sin, right? The whole Achan thing, it's covered now. They're moving forward. It's not just that. What else did they offer? And they sacrificed fellowship offerings. These are very cool. Fellowship offerings are also known as peace offerings or shalom offerings. They're different than other sacrifices in this. Normally, whatever you sacrifice to God, you give all to God. This is the only sacrifice where you get to eat a part of what you're offering. You eat a piece, the priest eats a piece, and the rest is given to God like you're having a meal together. That you are having wholeness. That when there's a meal in the, Old, in the Old Testament or in the Middle East world, that's more of an idea of community, of being together. So to have a meal with God is to say, God, you have done everything that we might be together again with nothing in between us. So they offered those because they knew they could move forward. But they needed to re-rack and lock in their hearts what they're doing. That's next. There, verse 32, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses that he had written. Now, literally in front of everyone is he sitting there with a little chisel going ding, 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 ding. And they're like, man, you're killing me. How long is this going to take? No, they were stones covered in plaster. Lime and gypsum plaster would make the stone white. You then write an etch on the white stone, outline it in red, and put the background black so it would pop and come out. He began to write all these in front of them. They all had to wait until he displayed the law of Moses. Why? Why were they in trouble in the first place? Because they weren't paying attention to what God wanted. So we're going to take a little time, he said, to focus on what God wants. It says, all Israel, all Israel, aliens, and citizens alike with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Those are representatives. Religious community, government officials, they're all hanging out by the gold box that represents God's presence. But notice it says, all what? Aliens and citizens alike. This is not just a Jew thing. This is a God thing. So even foreigners that were God-fearers were allowed in the camp. It says, they faced those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half the people stood in the front of Mount Gerizim. Half the people in front of Mount Ebal. So now, let's take two million people. He takes them to Shechem, which is a natural amphitheater, so everyone can hear, and split a million up on this mountain, 
a million over on this mountain, right? And now he's going to read the law of God. Understand, they were split out in a very specific way. The Old Testament tells you how they were split. Six tribes, actually seven on one, five on the other. Excuse me, six on the other. How do we know that? It's written down. On the Gerizim side was Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph's kids, and, and Benjamin. Joseph's kids are Benjamin and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. Gosh, you don't even care about this, do you? I don't even know why I'm telling you this. I just realized I'm like trying to get it right, and you're like, no one cares. Just move on, dude. Now that I shared one side, I'm sharing the other. So there. The other side was Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And here's how it would work. It says, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curses, just as is written in the book of the law. That's Deuteronomy 28. What he did is he would have everybody locked up there and he would say... If you follow God's command, he will bless you. And everyone on Gerizim would say, Amen. They would all shout. He'd say, If you do not follow the law of God, you will be cursed. And everyone on Ebal would go, Amen. And they would shout and recitate back and forth. Whenever a blessing was said, Gerizim would Amen. Whenever a curse was said, Ebal would Amen. And they were having this huge worship service right in between two mountains. The word, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. Not one word was left out. That's one of the reasons why we do expository and exegetical teaching here, because it forces us to teach you things that I would never normally teach. Now, what's the point of the story? Israel won. I don't think that we need to get real deep on that. They won, but why'd they win? Because God brought blessing upon them because there was a restoration of relationship. Now, let's bring it home to us. What about us? They re-racked because they knew they had spent so much time in sin. They knew they were off base. They knew they weren't walking in God's will. And they knew that their religion had dominated their relationship. Where are you at? You need to come home? Let me share with you the thoughts of the prodigal son. At the end of the story, one son remains lost. And it's not the younger brother. The younger brother is in the party with dad. The younger, pro- younger brother is in the feast. At the end of this world, Revelation 21 says there will be a feast. You going to be at that party? Because the moral guy is not. Hmm. He hurts his father by not going into the feast because the father's joy was never his concern. His obedience was to get things, not to get his father. How are you doing in your walk with God? Why are you doing what you're doing? You living a good life? Most of you are. If not, I hear about it. 
You there's a lot of moral people here. You see, if you're an older brother, you're going to remain outside and you're not going home. How do you know if you're an older brother? Here's some signs. If you think that God owes you for following the rules, you might be an older brother. When you feel that life, when life goes awry for you, you're not just sad, but you're angry and bitter at God. Because how dare he? After all you've done. If you feel that goodness should pay off and feel that you are owed more than you get, you have a problem here. If you have a superior attitude to others, you don't realize that you can't forgive others if you feel superior to them. If your obedience is fear-based and not love-based, you're an older brother. If you do good to other people because ultimately, hey, it's good for you. That's right, it's good for you. If you have a dry prayer life and all your unanswered prayers keep provoking you to say, God, do you love me enough? Just because he didn't answer your prayer. If you see nothing wrong with your condition, you're probably an older brother. Problem is, is the church is full of them. Here's the problem. We walk out into the world and turn regular people into younger brothers. You know why? Because they never want to be like us. They never want to be religious. They never want to be stuffy. They never want to be irritating and fighting all the time. So they want to run from God as far as they can. Older brothers create younger brothers. Is that what we're doing? Are we Pharisees? See, the gospel is totally different. The gospel is based on four premises. Number one, everyone's wrong. Number two, everybody's loved. Number three, everybody needs it. And they need to see it. And number four, everyone needs to change. That's the gospel. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how much you're trying to make God love you. Or you're trying to rein him in because if I'm really good, then he'll owe me this. God never signed that contract. And every time we get bitter because he didn't pull through on his side, we've revealed our problem. How do we change from being an older brother? We need to understand God's love. Do you understand that the father went to both sons? Not just the younger brother to the edge of the property. He went outside the party to the religious, smug, self-righteous one. And he said, my son... You have me. But that wasn't enough. We need to repent deeper than just regret for sins. More than just feeling bad or punishing yourself. Because religious people are excellent at punishing yourself. You can go through your whole life and go, I'm a loser. I don't deserve God's grace. And just keep hammering yourself just to try to punish yourself. That's not repentance. That's part of it. But it's not all of it. We've got to repent of the reasons why we did everything right. Repent for why you're so moral in the first place. Repent for why you're doing good things. Because you know it's not about God. It's still about you. It's still about me. 
We have to repent for the sins that are underneath and supporting our righteousness. And we've got to repent from trying to be our own savior. Intriguing challenge is this. It's the third parable of three. In the first parable, a coin is sought and found. Remember? Because coins aren't going to go anywhere until they're found. The sheep was lost and the shepherd did what? He went out and got the sheep. Problem is, in the third parable, no one went out to get the younger brother. Why? Who was supposed to go get him? Any guesses? The older brother. Dad stays home. What is the church person supposed to do? Go out and get him. He's the one that's rebelling. What do I got to go out there? Because he's your brother. And it's your job. Nice. I go out there. What? If I bring him home, it's going to cost me. Don't you get that? Yes, I do. You're going to bring him home and he's going to get one third of everything that you have again. Well, I don't want to go get him. I don't even like him. I know. But that's kind of a problem, don't you think? The elder brother didn't go. Nobody went. God had to draw him back on his own. That's a shame. You see, it's different with Jesus. Jesus became our older brother, came down here in the flesh, and came out and got us. That's what the older brother should have done. Why did Jesus become flesh? Hey, look, I'm part of your family. I'm going to get you. We are all wandering and wanting to go home. The younger brother hated being told what to do and went off and just went ahead into the world. Pretty empty out there, huh? Go ahead, try it again. Is that what you want? You want to run away? You'll be back. Why? Because there ain't nothing out there that you need. A lot out there that you want, but you know it won't last. Now you're here. Come home. The rest of us stayed good guys. And we're equally lost. Because we stayed at home and we hate every minute of it. God's telling me what to do. I can't do this. I can't do that. God's going to be mad at me if I blow it. Right? Wrong. We are all exiles wanting home. We were built for the Garden of Eden. And everything down here stinks. Jesus paid for our exile. He came here and died a common criminal outside the wall of Jerusalem, exiled from the city. So we would never be exiled. And he did everything we can't do. And he paid our penalty. So how do we change? We change not by trying harder, but by understanding Christ more. If your faith is dry, you don't understand anymore. If we say, I believe in Jesus and there's no life change, the answer is not adding hard work to that. It's a realization that it means you never believed in the first place. Because what you believe, you will do. 
I asked you a question and I said, why is it that you don't pray three times a day by facing Mecca and bowing down in the name of Allah? If I asked you that, why don't, why don't you do that? You'd go, but it's pretty obvious, Lance, I don't believe that. Oh, so your beliefs affect how you act. Oh, okay. Why do you love your kids? Because they're my kids. I'm the only one that's going to look after them. They're the ones that are looking up to me and I'm their primary driver. Oh, so it's pretty natural to you then. Interesting. How come you call yourself a Christian and no one can tell? Oh, okay. Come home. And if you're home, come to the party. I know grace irritates you. I know you want to control God. I know you want to sign the contract. I do good stuff. You make me cool, right? God will not sign that. Jake, can you bring the team up here? Here's what we're going to do. On my left side, your right, is a prayer sign. There's some of you here going, I don't know what is wrong with all you church people. Jesus sounds pretty cool. And I need to be saved of my sins. So forget all of you. I want nothing to do with your smug self-righteousness. I need Jesus. If that is you, you go over here. When the music starts playing, you get out of your seat, you walk up here. Everyone's going to be focused on something else. Don't worry about it. You get out of your seat, you walk over here, and a prayer team member will talk with you. They will talk about receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time. Everyone else, to all my pharisaical friends, we've got to come home. And it's time to come home up here. When the song begins to play, I want you to use the altar. It's cement. I get that. We put little squishy pads on the bottom so you don't kill yourself. If it fills up, go wherever you're at. Now, Lance, I kind of dressed up. Bad weekend. (laughs) There you go. Look, I'm in slacks too. There you go. Look at that. It's not that big of a deal. All right. Here's the thing. We're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to open our heart and we're going to ask him to massage our hearts and bring them back to life. Before we've dealt with our sin, it's time now to re-rack, get your head back in the game, and let's march towards victory. Amen?